0: Acts chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one could give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, it's good to be back at Lehigh Valley after a couple of weeks of respite. Many thanks to Pastor Green and Pastor Gomez also for filling in last week. I was really blessed to listen to their sermons on Sermon Audio. I hope you were too. Uh, today we jump back into Acts. Today also marks the beginning of our Sunday school year. Most of you kids out there started regular school year already, I'm guessing, for myself, uh, I- I'm just glad I don't actually have to go to school anymore. But uh, today is uh, this this year marks my first year teaching at the Excelsior Homeschool Co-op, and and I have Pastor Stone's old post teaching civics. Now this came with complications, and I'm sure more will come. But uh, to teach at Excelsior, I learned uh, apparently requires me to get updated background checks from the state and from the FBI and all this other stuff, and so. I started that process this week and things immediately got complicated because there was a glitch in the Pennsylvania website. Uh, They allowed me to create safety questions when I set up my account uh, that included punctuation marks. However, while it allowed them when I created the questions, it would not accept punctuation once I signed in. (laughs) So I called Pennsylvania to get this straightened out, and the automated system that I called after putting me through three or four menus uh, finally said, oh, to speak to a representative, it kept pausing to say, if this is an emergency, dial 911. And when I finally got through to something, it said that I was in a one-minute wait, and I'm like, oh, that's great, that you're next in the system, wonderful. So after about a minute, a lady picks up, and she immediately asks if I would please hold. (laughs) I said, okay. And then the music came on for about a minute or two, and then the music stopped. And I could hear her shuffling around at her desk. She might have been eating. (laughs) This went on for about five minutes. Then the music started again. And that went on for another five or ten minutes, and then she picked up again. And we ended up talking for about 15 to 20 minutes, during which I was told that Macintoshes are not good for this website and that Safari is not the recommended server, and basically the system is messed up, but she can't override it, and I can't start over again because the system will say that my email is a duplicate. So I'll have to do all of this by snail mail, she explained to me. (laughs) Now, at this point, I was ready to flip my lid. I said, listen, I know this isn't your fault, but isn't this kind of ridiculous? We're talking about the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. You're a big organization. Can't you fix this? And then she began giving me a list of different phone numbers I could call to register a complaint, and she was starting to give me a reference number for this phone call. And I stopped her in mid-sentence, and I said, listen, I'm mad, but I'm not crazy. I don't have time to spend all day registering my displeasure with a system where nobody cares. And she just laughed, and she apologized, and said she understood how I felt. Now, this was not necessarily the most gracious way I could have handled this situation. Uh, Maybe I could have offered to pray for her in this difficult place and time, but I was a little too angry at the time. Now, this was a classic case of having no one to appeal to. Maybe you're familiar with the old saying that you can't fight City Hall. Well, you sure can't fight the technological bureaucracy of Harrisburg either, and I decided no good could come of this. And today's story in our passage marks another pivotal moment in the ministry of Paul, and it happens because Paul makes an appeal. It's a pretty grand appeal. I think it's one of the more memorable moments in the book. And it feels so dramatic because, you know, Paul's court case, as we've been seeing already, it's been dragged out for now a couple of years, right? And it's clearly going nowhere. Uh, So Paul reaches the end of his argument. He has nothing more to say. And so he pulls out the biggest ace he has in the hole. And it's a bold gambit. And we're going to see over the next few weeks how this actually plays out. But I think it begs the question, where should Christians appeal for justice? I think what Paul does here is very unusual, and it's kind of unexpected. And if you've read it before, you know, familiarity does this. It might not seem that way. It's kind of hard to imagine it going any other way when you already know the story. But as we go through this passage, I want you to consider what Paul is doing and kind of ask yourself if he was making the right move here and consider what you would do if you were in his shoes and ask yourself, who do you appeal to when you want justice? Well, we'll set the stage with a brief Refresher on where things have been since it's been a couple weeks. You may recall that Paul was arrested in Jerusalem a couple years back because you always arrest the guy who was getting beat up, right? That's the way Romans operate. And the Roman police chief, Lysias, uh, basically ended up kind of on Paul's side, uh, really. He he sent him to Felix, the governor, up in Caesarea, mostly to keep him safe. Uh, He sent him unbound with an entire uh, cavalry regiment, Uh, and and a letter to the governor basically saying, like, look, I think Paul should be set free. Uh, And Felix held a hearing for Paul where the Jews accused him of rioting, and Felix didn't really buy it, but he kept Paul on house arrest in the palace for two years. Now, these two years were basically more like, yeah, like house arrest, not real prison prison. He was constantly being invited to come and sit with the governor and with the family. I assume they ate a lot of meals together. He's become something like a family pet. For Felix. Uh, He was living in luxury, he just wasn't allowed to leave. So for two years, he evangelized the governor and his family, and at the end, Felix went back to Rome. And historians tell us that he went back there because he had to go face charges over his mismanagement of the province. But whatever Felix's misdeeds during the working day, his evenings were spent chatting largely with Paul about the gospel and the hope of the resurrection. But after two years of this warm, friendly relationship, Felix treats Paul kind of like a political pawn, doesn't he? He left him in custody in prison as a favor to the Jews. Now that's not fair. That's not just. Frankly, it's downright mean, because he knows Paul at this point. Felix knew perfectly well that Paul was harmless. He's he's an academic type, he's a nerd, he's a tent maker. Sure, he's zealous about this Jesus character, but he's not, gonna, he's not the type to going to go and overthrow the empire. Like, that's not Paul. But political realities have a way sometimes of overruling justice. If Felix is in trouble for mismanagement of Jewish affairs, leaving Paul locked up was an easy way to do the Jews a quick political favor on your way out the door, right? They would be less likely to come and testify him at the upcoming trial. So Paul stays in the cell, and Portius Festus arrives and takes over the Judean governorship. And there would have been a lot of bustle and fanfare, you would think, in the palace about the new boss, and I'm sure Paul could hear some of this stuff from his room, but it's not likely that he was the first one to be kept in the loop. And I doubt that Felix gave Paul a formal goodbye, because how do you say goodbye to a guy like, hey, I'm going to leave you here, <laughs> see ya. sorry, it's been really fun. But Paul must realize that something is happening upstairs, but we finally get to meet Festus and and see him in action a little bit. says, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied, that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. All right. I think already we can see that Festus is a pretty smart guy and probably a better man than Felix. Not that the bar is exactly set very high. Mm-hmm. So think about it. He's in Caesarea for three days. He's the new governor, and almost immediately he makes a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And I'm sure Felix probably spent some time in Jerusalem at some point, but Luke never mentions it, and you almost kind of get the impression from the account that he kind of prefers to give orders from the palace. Caesarea is where the Roman rule is strongest. It's safer if you're a Roman leader. Uh, Festus, on the other hand, has the wisdom to know, coming in here, that Jerusalem is the heart of the province, even if it's not the capital. That's where the Jewish power center is, and that's where he needs to show his face if he's going to rule this province effectively. So he makes that priority number one. No sooner does he unpack his bags than he heads up the road, up the hill to Jerusalem. And also, he willingly meets with the Jewish leadership. Once he gets there, he didn't go to Jerusalem just to throw his weight around and be like, hey, I'm the new top guy. He takes the time to meet with the tribal leaders and hear what's on their minds. It's kind of like you're playing cleanup a little bit from your predecessor. And not only that, he shows respect for them by agreeing to hold a new trial for Paul. But he's smart enough not to let the Jews dictate the terms or the location. He insists that the hearing will be in Caesarea, away from the unruly mobs in Jerusalem. So I think he's a sharp guy, and Luke is immediately showing this as a contrast to Felix, The governor is an immediate improvement on his predecessor. However, at the same time, Luke makes very clear that the Jews are just as vindictive as ever. They have not forgotten about Paul and that cell up there in Caesarea. So they ask Festus to send him back because they still want him dead. They want Paul in a loosely protected convoy traveling on a predictable road so they can set up a Godfather-style hit, kind of like what they did to Sonny at the toll booth. So Jake and I, this week, we we were at the Allentown Fair, and uh, that was Thursday, and and we saw the Army National Guard booth, and we were looking at the striker that they have on display there, right? And uh, they explained this thing was designed to carry personnel, up to 11 soldiers, uh, but it's also heavily armored and has a lot of weaponry on it. The gal was explaining this thing was not just like a glorified school bus. It provides 80% of the firepower in the convoy. That's a lot of firepower. I'm sure the Taliban's going to love them. Point is, Rome didn't have that kind of equipment back in these days, nor did they typically give prisoners a grand escort. The way Lycia sent Paul to Caesarea, that was not typical. That was highly unusual. It was weird. The normal transport would probably be a small handful of guards. So the Jews want to find Paul relatively unguarded, and their grudge against him is still very hot. So Festus says, look bring your top guys down to Caesarea and we'll deal with this thing. And the Jews, having no better option at this point, do as they're told. It says after he stayed among them not more than 8 or 10 days, he went down to Caesarea and the next day, so pretty quickly, right? He took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. I want you to try to appreciate how Paul must be feeling in this moment. You have to remember, he was on good terms with Felix. He knew Felix's wife. He was on a first-name basis with the whole household. But now this is a new governor who Paul has never met, he's never seen. He had lots of privileges under Felix, but those were effectively revoked a couple weeks ago. Paul hasn't been out of his cell in weeks. So this is the first time even seeing the new governor. He gets escorted into the main hall only to face a complete stranger. And then surrounding him are the same Jews that were here yelling at him two years ago. It's deja vu all over again. And I think we could excuse Paul for feeling lots of different emotions in this moment. He could feel panic because the situation has changed. And more than likely not for the better. He could feel a lot of anger, anger at Felix for leaving him here, anger at these Jews for persecuting him like this. He could feel rather self-conscious because he's trying to get a read on Festus and the new situation, figure out what makes this guy tick, what's going on. But honestly, I think probably the predominant feeling has got to be frustration. Paul has been stuck here for two years. He has not planted any new churches. He is not discipling old churches. He's not on the mission field at all. He's been stuck here for two years preaching the gospel to the same stubborn people who aren't listening. To no avail. Now, if I was Paul, I would be really tired by now. Emotionally, mentally, spiritually. He's got to be feeling it at this point. So how does he respond? It says, now Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense, end quote. I put it to you that this is the defense of a man who has almost nothing left in the tank. There is no speech. There is no grand argument. It is short and sweet. I didn't do nothing. This is the closest, I think, that Paul has come to sounding defeated during this entire ordeal. He doesn't even try to present the gospel in this passage. Now, I'll admit, presenting the gospel probably wouldn't be forefront on my mind. It wouldn't be my automatic go-to if I were on trial. But Paul has pretty consistently done that very thing. He uses every opportunity, it seems, to talk about Jesus and the resurrection. But not here. Here, he simply asserts his innocence and leaves it at that. I think he's fatigued. He's so quiet that even Festus seems uncomfortable with the situation. For a guy who's supposed to be a master criminal, this guy kind of seems pathetic. But Festus is still a politician, right? And Paul is still a pawn in the game. So what does Festus say? says, Festus... Wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Festus is talking to Paul like a child. Honey, do you want to go back home and then we can talk about it, okay? Festus knows full well that Paul has no reason to want to go to Jerusalem. He also knows full well that Paul has no obligation to go there. He's a Roman citizen who has every right to insist on staying right where he is, in Roman custody, in a Roman city. I think Festus asks this question because Paul looks like he's almost stopped caring. He looks like a broken man. And I think Festus starts to wonder if maybe Paul would willingly just relinquish his rights. Maybe we can take him up there to Jerusalem, do a quick trial, and put this guy out of his misery. The Jews will be happy. I can restore order to the province and maybe even earn a commendation from the emperor. I am so going to be better than Felix at this job. But out of nowhere, suddenly, right, Paul suddenly gets just a little bit spicy, But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. It's kind of like Paul just finally woke up in this trial. Like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I'm not going back there. I'm a Roman. I disown my Jewish citizenship. I belong in a Roman court. I've done nothing to these guys. And not only that, you know it. That's Paul sowing little chutzpah there. It's quite a thing to say to the most powerful guy in the room, because it's kind of like an accusation, isn't it? We both know you're only holding me here for political reasons, and I am not going back to Jerusalem, and you can't make me. But then Paul also adds an interesting thing here that is, I think, unique to the Christian worldview, because he also throws in there, like, look, if I have done something worthy of death, I'm not going to try to wiggle out of it. That kind of attitude is not something you're going to find in a whole lot of worldviews in the world. C.S. Lewis argued that a Christian who is guilty of murder should confess his crime, even though he knows that it means he'll be hanged. At least it did in his day. I mean, we affirm, like, in Christ, you are not eternally accountable for your sins. But you may have to pay for them in the here and now sometimes. As Christians, we are in favor of justice in this world, even if it's at our own expense. And the government, even a wicked government, has the obligation to punish evildoers in some instances. And Paul, even now, affirms that. Paul wants Festus to know that he is not afraid of justice. Nor is he afraid of death. But he is in no mood to deal with the Jews anymore, and Festus has no right to hand him over. Now, Paul could have stopped right there. It was a fine speech. Short to the point, heck no, I'm not going to Jerusalem, you have no right to send me there. And if he had stopped here, Festus would have been right back in Felix's position in a lot of ways, because, like, can't let the guy go, Jews will probably kill him. Can't execute him. He's a citizen, and no one has made a credible charge. I can't keep him here indefinitely. So what do you do? But that's when Paul does his mic drop moment. One could argue he jumps the shark a little bit. With those four immortal words, he stops the whole show. I appeal to Caesar. I'm thinking there was probably a collective gasp in the room at this point. Now, Paul could have said these words at any point in the last two years if he really wanted to, but he didn't. We can't say why for sure, except that maybe he was content to keep evangelizing Felix, but the fact that he pulls this ace out of the hole is, I believe, an indication that Paul has reached the end of his patience. This is essentially rolling your eyes at the whole situation. When you roll your eyes without realizing, I mean, you're kind of making this, this indication you're looking to heaven at this point, you know, rather than the people in front of you, right? That's basically what Paul's doing here. He still has no attorney. He's tired of playing these political games, so he basically throws a grenade in the middle of the room. This is the Hail Mary. It's the bomb in the end zone as the time's running out. He's going for broke. What is Paul hoping to accomplish with this move? I don't know for sure. Maybe he didn't either. But frankly, on its face, it doesn't seem like the most sensible thing, does it? It seems a little bit melodramatic. In our modern American parlance, we would call this making a federal case out of it. Now I don't know about you, but I've never heard that phrase used in a positive way. Mom never encouraged me to make a federal case out of anything. No one ever says that so-and-so made a federal case out of something and meant it as a compliment, right? In our context, this always means making a mountain out of a molehill, but that's almost literally what Paul is doing here. He's asking the Roman emperor, the most powerful human being, arguably, on earth at that point, to hear a case about a small religious sect being mad at an even smaller religious sect in a part of the empire that no one feels like dealing with anyway. Now... There's several possibilities why Paul might do this. Maybe he thought this was a strategic move, throw Caesar's name out there and get everybody paying attention. Maybe he's just doing this to mess with everyone and create some noise. Maybe he's actually legitimately afraid of the Jews and just wants to get as far away from them as he can. That's possible, although Paul doesn't usually seem controlled by fear. He might just be exasperated, and who can blame him? He's tired of arguing the same case, tired of sitting on the sidelines while the work of the church needs doing, tired of Judea, tired of the palace. I think that's very likely a part of it. But I also began to wonder over the last couple of weeks as I looked this passage over whether something else could possibly be going on here. What if Paul legitimately hoped that Caesar would be fair? Maybe maybe the emperor would be able to see through all the haze of the stupidity of Judean politics. What if Paul, even if a small part of Paul, had a naive faith in the idea of Roman justice? Maybe he had confidence in his citizenship to get him free so he could get back to kingdom work, planning churches, and spreading the gospel. Because I think the, the Roman Empire, it wasn't just a political state. It was also an idea. It's a concept. If you've ever seen Gladiator, Russell Crowe, right? You see this idea at work very early in the movie. There's a scene uh, in that movie where Maximus is talking with the emperor, Marcus Aurelius, played by Richard Harris. And, and Marcus, uh, you know, Maximus is Spanish, but he's the commanding general of the Roman legions. And Marcus Aurelius asks him, he says, what is Rome, Maximus? And Maximus says, I have seen much of the rest of the world. It is brutal, cruel, and dark. Rome is the light. I think many Roman citizens felt that way. Now, I don't think Paul would have worded it that way. He had a much better idea of what the true light was, much closer to the idea we just sang in our hymn before the sermon. But I do wonder if he had maybe some small faith in the Roman idea He frequently appeals to his Roman citizenship, and this is just taking it to the highest possible level. He's making the biggest appeal that a Roman citizen can make. And that's basically what we often do, right? Even in this country, we appeal to our rights, to some higher thing. The American church depends a lot, for instance, on the First Amendment to get by. So maybe, just maybe... When Paul said some years ago, I must go see Rome, I thought to myself, maybe he was partly expressing a patriotic interest as a born Roman citizen. You know, the the same way people visit Philadelphia to see the birthplace of America. Or some poor souls visit Washington, D.C. We were down in Cape May the week before last. My happy place, you know. But from there... Uh, Instead of going home directly, we went to visit my cousin in northern Virginia. Uh, Partly this gave us an excuse to take the ferry, which is the closest I'll ever get to taking Georgia on a cruise. Um, But after you get off the ferry, and and it was kind of rainy and, and everything else, but it was interesting, right? But after that ride, it was a beautiful drive through farmland in southern Delaware and Maryland, I didn't know they had beautiful farmland in Delaware and Maryland. I didn't know they had anything of beauty there. I mean, look, I understand, Reverend Green, you're from near Hagerstown. I think it's probably pretty over there, too. But I've only seen, like, the ugly parts on 95, right? So, and then you get to the Chesapeake Bay, and the views are gorgeous. And then you get to DC. And I swear, like, 90% of my happiness just evaporated and, and, and melted away here on the Washington Beltway. Now I have from this pulpit I know once described the New Jersey highway system as the closest thing to purgatory. I should apologize to our New Jersey friends, Mr. Angelari. the DC Beltway has you all licked. It's bad. It is a perpetual traffic nightmare. Because it is a circle, the rush hour traffic never ends, because it's going in all directions. Death is always right around the corner. It's an endless roundabout full of commuters and construction sites. And we're sitting here following Google Maps. And Google Maps, just to remind me of the futility of my life, every three minutes starts barking at me, in a quarter mile, turn right to stay on I-495. I could have screamed. And then when we cross the Virginia border, like you're thinking, like, all right, we're not in DC anymore. But you can see the spillover of Washington's growth. Countless new Soviet-style apartment complexes, right? And developments to house all the bureaucrats down there. The entire metropolitan area is congested, ugly, monstrous, and depressing. When you are on the DC Beltway, it is nearly impossible to think of this place as the bastion of hope and freedom, a place you could appeal to for help No, it's a leviathan, a place to be avoided at all costs. If I didn't love my cousins, I'd never go there again. Well, likewise, anyone who had ever actually been to Rome would have known that the hope of finding justice there was not only naive, but sadly pathetic. I mentioned before that that scene from Gladiator where Maximus says that Rome is the light. In the very next line, Marcus Aurelius retorts. He says, but you've never been there! You do not realize what it has become. In other words, Rome is not all it's cracked up to be. And Festus had to know that, too, which is why I think Festus was confounded by Paul's request. It almost seems like he was inclined to advise Paul against it. Like, whoa, 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 take it easy, buddy. Like, I don't think you know what you're asking for. Rome ain't exactly sunshine and lollipops. Do you realize we're talking about Nero here? Good King Wenceslaus, it is not. But in the end, he relents. Says Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Festus needed some legal input from the team about this, but he finally agrees to let this one go. And Festus was right. Paul would go to Caesar. Because if you appeal to Caesar... You put yourself at his mercy. We are always at the mercy of the person we're asking for help. Part of me wondered, does Paul realize what he just got himself into? Now, I'll say on on one level, I think, that this passage demonstrates that our earthly citizenship is valid. Paul is literally casting aside his Jewishness. I am no longer identifying that way. I am a Roman here. And I don't think Paul sinned in the process. I think he had every right to make this appeal. The charges against him were false. His accusers had offered no proof. And the judges in this case were clearly biased. Twice now we've been told that the Roman governor was inclined to screw Paul over just because he wanted to do his enemies a favor. So Paul has a legitimate cause for making this appeal. Whatever his motives were, I don't think he did anything wrong. And if I were in Paul's shoes, I don't know, maybe we would likely do the same thing. But the more you think about it, that's not just a hypothetical scenario either. I am speaking to a largely American crowd today, I think even on Sermon Audio. Uh, Most American Christians will simultaneously say that God is sovereign. But we will also appeal to various government entities to vindicate our cause. Many American Christians are trusting in the First Amendment to protect God. It's a little backwards. No. The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. But in practice, I submit that many of us start by appealing to Caesar. We call the hotline in Harrisburg. We campaign for candidates. We campaign for certain policies. We wait with bated breath to see what the Supreme Court says about an issue. We watch the news and complain about the president. And the knee-jerk response to any news item is for us to look to government, either because we're asking them for help or because we need to blame them. We call our senators only to ask for things or complain. And yes, we'll pray, too, in the American church, but usually after... All of our civic and legal channels have been exhausted. Because prayer, I think, for many self-professed Christians, is a last resort. It's what you do when you can't do anything else anymore. What do people say? They say, there's nothing left for us to do now but pray. Right? Many Christians, and I think probably including some in this room, I'm sure, have far too many expectations when it comes to what our government can do or even should do. We have this firm belief in the idea of America. So we appeal to politicians, and we appeal to the Constitution, and we appeal to our founding principles, or our Judeo-Christian values, whatever it may be. And look, the idea of America was not all bad, right? I'm teaching civics this fall. Not everything I'm teaching is going to be negative. I think some of our founding principles are wonderful. But... The idea and the reality are not identical any more than the noble idea of Rome matched the reality then. Nothing will cure expectations like actually working in the government. I interned for a U.S. senator when I was in college. You want to know what I did with 90% of my time there? We were the ones answering the phones if you ever called. The lowest level paid staff could not be bothered to answer the phones, so they had the interns do it. And that wasn't the only fraud of the whole thing, because we had no answers, we had no idea what we were talking about. And I can still tell you on top of that, I remember the name of the one employee who forged the senator's signature on all the Eagle Scout commendation letters, because the senator didn't have time for it. And my point is, is so much of American government is just a facade. It's true of Washington, but it was also true of Rome. And Festus knew it. And I think he felt bad to send Paul there. But Paul, seemingly, would rather face death in Rome than endless trials in Judea. He may not trust Roman justice, but it's better than what he's going to get from his countrymen. Jesus once said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but what do we have a right to expect from Caesar? Should we expect anything? What did Paul expect? Does Paul really expect justice? Or is this just a clever stunt to get to Rome? Was this the act of a desperate man or a momentary lapse of judgment? No. Paul may be tired and frustrated, but he knows what he's doing. I think Paul is making a courageous move here. He's asking for justice, yes, but he's not necessarily expecting it or even demanding it. I think he appeals to Caesar knowing that his ultimate hope was not in Jerusalem or in Rome. His hope is seated at the Father's right hand in heaven. Not a ghost up there, but the resurrected Lord Jesus, body and all. The same Jesus who stood beside his bed two years ago and promised him that he would preach the gospel in Rome. Paul knows where he's going. He is not appealing to Caesar for ultimate justice, but because Jesus told him two years ago that he had to make an appointment. If you appeal to Caesar, you'll go to Caesar, but don't put your hope in Caesar. So I turn the question on us. Who do you appeal to? Where does your help come from? Paul, like the psalmist before him, knew that his ultimate hope was in the Lord, so he appealed to Caesar not for his own sake, but for the sake of the kingdom. Because the hope of the gospel is that Paul is already acquitted in heaven because of the work of Christ. And his hope is in the resurrection. If Jesus is alive, what can Caesar do to him? He's not looking for safety, but an opportunity. It's not about justice, it's about Jesus. Why else would he make such a bold and seemingly foolish appeal? Who would seek justice in Rome? It's a ludicrous idea. Yet he does this confidently in faith, knowing that Festus will grant the request. Why? Because Jesus promised that he would get there. Rome or bust, whether he's released or he gets there on appeal. His faith is not in Rome, but in Christ. Paul does not care if he lives or dies as long as he gets to tell Romans about Jesus because they needed Jesus more than Paul needed justice. So how about you? Are you waiting for answers from Washington or Harrisburg? City Hall? Or are you looking for a chance to glorify God by sharing Jesus even with inept bureaucrats? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have surely all known the frustration of dealing with various government entities. And I think most of us are familiar with the idea of trying to call some higher up, some some supervisor that we can talk to. Most of us are not naive enough to still be writing letters to the president expecting he's going to respond. But Lord, we do seem to put a lot of expectations on what our civil authorities can, can do, should do. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to set our hope where it belongs. And yet, Lord, to take every opportunity to shine your light, the light of the gospel, Lord, the hope of the resurrection, Lord even when we're on the phone talking to people who can't solve our problems, Lord, that we would not be driven by anger as I was this week. Lord, that we would see everything as an opportunity to show forth your gospel. Be glorified in how we walk this week. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.